Bibles and turn to John chapter 6, 14 rather. John chapter 14. We're going to get to verse 6. That's why I said that was in my head. Got ahead of myself. John chapter 14. In our text verses this morning are verses 1 through 6. And we started this passage a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago anyway, two or three uh, before family camp and our guest speaker and all of that. And so we're going to get back into this portion of Scripture. We only made it partway through. And so I'll remind you of what we talked about, and then we'll finish out these verses. Let's read, uh, in beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In our world, particularly, maybe primarily in America, uh, we, I don't think this is true anymore, but America used to be a, quote, Christian nation. And when you talk about Christian, of course, it's this giant umbrella that a lot of things fall under. And currently, there's religion, of course, that is religion of Jesus, or religion that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, but it's filled up with false doctrine or things that are apart from Christ. Um, I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that not long ago there was a very well-known, recognized religious leader in America who made this statement. And the statement was, I mean... Revelatory. I mean, it reveals what he truly thinks and believes. You would know him if I mentioned his name. But he said, many think differently, many feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in various and different ways. And in this crowd, in this range of religions, there is only one certainty that we have for all, and that is this, that we are all children of God. It was a, that's, his mindset is a universalism kind of a mindset, and his statement of people think differently, people feel differently, people seek God differently, people meet God in different ways, is, is, is a revealing of, of what he truly believes in his heart. There was another pastor, so-called, he's an author as well, who said this, there are many different ways to heaven. These are all under, quote, Christian religion. There's some common quotes by Americans and and some Christians that say it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you're sincere in what you believe, we're all going to the same place. We just have our different road to get there. There's a lot of people who say good people don't go to hell. Good people go to heaven. My God wouldn't send anybody to hell. Or whatever works for you is good for you. Whatever's true for you is true for you and it's true for me. And then you always have these that say it's very arrogant for you to believe that there's only one way to heaven. Well, Jesus said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so here's the idea. Here's the main point. You could even say the whole sermon summed up in a sentence. If you believe the Bible, then you also believe there's only one way to heaven. We can make it more personal and we can say if you don't believe in and you don't receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are going to spend eternity in the never-ending fires of hell because Jesus said there's only one way. That's not politically correct, but it is biblically correct. Well, we started out in this passage and we were talking about, we have to understand the context and we'll get to it in a minute. But we had said that there are four things, four assurances that Jesus gives to his disciples in this passage of Scripture that we can also receive from the Lord as well. And I'll briefly talk about the two that we covered already, and then we'll finish the last two in these verses this morning. Let's pray, though, first, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless his his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray, Lord, that you'd help us today with the word of God and Father, we give it to you, and Lord, I ask that you would have your will and way and hearts, that you would use God's word, your word, to penetrate the heart, and and Father, to accomplish what it is that you desire in each one. And Father, we seek to exalt Jesus Christ and no one else. In his name we pray, amen. The first assurance that Jesus gave in these verses that we talked about to his disciples was peace for troubled hearts. In verse 1, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here because there's no, there's no uh, break between chapter 13 and chapter 14. And I'll, I'll share some of that with you in a second here. But Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is offering peace to troubled hearts. And again, there's no break between chapter 13 and chapter 14. What we found in chapter 13 was that Jesus is still at supper with his disciples. Uh, In less than 24 hours from this period of time, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to shed his blood. He's going to give his life. And these last uh, hours of his life, Jesus is focused on his disciples and teaching them and preparing them for what is about to come. Jesus taught them the lessons of sacrificial service to others. We saw how Jesus washed the disciples' feet, all of them, even Judas, who was going to betray him. Jesus took on him the form of a servant. He did the job that was reserved for, for Gentile slaves. And Jesus said to his disciples, I'm teaching you something here. What I'm doing to you, you need to do to others. Jesus also taught them about selfless love. It was predicted Judas' betrayal that was about to happen. He also predicted Peter's denial that was about to happen. And Jesus says, a new commandment I'm giving you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. He's preparing them for the fact that he is going to be going away. He told them that he was going to go away. He told of his death. And the Bible tells us that they didn't understand that. And considering all of the things that just happened here and all the things that Jesus is telling them that is, that is about to happen, it, it might explain for us why verse 1 tells us that Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. It's quite probable that they were experiencing troubled hearts 
from all that Jesus had told them was about to happen. When Jesus said that one of you is going to betray me, they're all like, is it I? Is it I, Lord? When Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. Before the night is over, you're going to deny me. And you know how Peter was in his heart and his spirit at times. Jesus said, I'm going, to be, I'm, going to, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going away. Here they had been following him for three years of their life, putting all of their hopes and their dreams in him as the Messiah. No doubt all of the information that they were taking in might have stirred and troubled their hearts. And Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The word troubled means to stir up, to agitate. And we talked about how we can get that way at times too. Troubled hearts, stirred up, agitated hearts. We can get full of anxiety and full of fear over things that haven't even happened yet. And sometimes we can invent things and we can imagine things that are going to happen and we can be troubled over imaginary things. And Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. We're not to allow our hearts to be troubled. But how is that possible? How do we not let our hearts be troubled? Because, you know, a common response to fear or being troubled is to, to worry, to constantly worry. And that's not the place that the Lord wants us to be. He says, don't let that happen. But how? He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Believe and trust in the Lord is the answer to a troubled heart. If you're saved, you've believed on the Lord for salvation. Amen. How then can we not trust him with this daily life that we live? The only way to have peace in the midst of troubled times is to trust in the Lord. Those were the principles that we talked about last time. The second one, not only was there peace for troubled hearts, but Jesus then says there's a place in the Father's house. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Here's another assurance that Jesus offered a place in the Father's house. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And we talked about these words and how there's an element of, quote, Christianity that gets hung up on, what does the word mansion mean? You know, is it this lavish, elaborate, you know, dwelling place? And then there are those who say it's an apartment. And then there are those who say, my God's not going to put me in some apartment building etc., etc. People go back and forth and get hung up here. Is it literally a mansion and so on? And it's all on how we imagine things in this temporal life. But the point and the thing that is so often missing is that Jesus says, in my Father's house. This is the part that most uh, miss and, 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 and Uh, passed by. Jesus is talking about God the Father, and he's picturing heaven as a loving home where the Father dwells. And the point that Jesus is making is not about how lavish things are, but that I am personally preparing a place for you, and it's home. It's where the Father dwells. The point is not the lavishness of the place. And we talked about this is God, after all. And we can't even imagine 
all that God has prepared. And we talked about, you know, uh, uh, the, remember, do you remember talking about uh, buckling up your seatbelt onto a, a beam of light that travels at 186,000 miles a second and realizing that it would take 200,000 years just to get across our own galaxy? And there are billions of galaxies with billions of light, of light years in between them. And God measures it all in the span of his hand. Imagine his house. Imagine his throne. Imagine his table. We can't even hardly imagine it, but that's not even the point. The point is not the lavishness of the place, but the fact that the preparation has been made by Jesus himself. Heaven is not heaven because of how lavish it will be. Heaven is heaven because Jesus Christ is there and we will be with him. But beyond that, friend, it's more than that. It's our permanent home where the Father is. Listen, the world is not your home. The world is temporary. And the lesson is, don't get so attached to that which is going to vanish away. Amen? So we saw peace for troubled hearts. We saw a place in the Father's house. And the last two that we're going to cover this morning is found in verses 2 and 3, and then we'll focus in on verse 6. The next one is a promise to return. A promise to return. Notice the end of verse 2. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. What a great promise and truth is found in these verses here. Jesus says at the end of verse 2, I go to prepare a place for you. And we could just sort of read over that and imagine in our mind that Jesus went on to prepare a place for us and praise the Lord for that. But, but, but there's something that is interesting here. There's something that is more valuable here if we take the time to look at it. The word that Jesus uses to describe himself, when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, the word that, that Jesus uses to describe himself is the Greek word pratamos. And it's often translated in English as forerunner. And, and, and this would have had significant meaning to his disciples. The word itself means to travel. It means to traverse. But it carries the meaning of going ahead to remove the obstructions. Now think with me and follow this. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And the word is, it means, it carries the meaning of one who goes ahead to remove the obstructions. In their day, whenever there would be a, a, a port that ships would come into, if it was a hard a port to navigate, if it, was, if it was tight or if there were dangers, if there were other things you know, that could, could ruin the ships, these great merchant ships that would come into these ports would always need help. And what they would do is they would send out a pilot boat. 
And the pilot boat would guide them into the harbor. It went before them, and the boat followed, the the merchant ship would follow it in as it led them along the channel through the safe waters. That boat, that pilot boat, was called the Pratamas. In the Roman army, for example, the Pratamai were the reconnaissance troops. And they went ahead of the main body of the army to blaze a trail to remove the obstructions and to ensure that it was safe for the rest of the troops to follow. This illustrates for us exactly what Jesus Christ is and what he did as our forerunner. It illustrates for us what Jesus is saying about himself in this passage, that he goes first to remove the obstructions for those who would follow. He makes or slash is the way to heaven, and he is the access to God. You know what? There is a great obstruction between man and God. There is a great obstruction that keeps you from having access to God, keeps me from having access to God. That obstruction from the presence of God is sin. Our very nature keeps us from God. The Bible says in Psalm 51 in verse 5, the psalmist said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58 in verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. You know what? You don't have to teach a baby how to lie. Our very nature is corrupt. We're already separated from God. There's a great obstruction that we have between God, and it's our iniquity and it's our sin, and we came into this world that way. There's no such thing as a good person. Just uh, the other day, when Brother Kuzel was here, we went over to the lake to go pick something up. The girls had my truck, and I needed to get something out of the truck, and so on and so on. We go over there, and I'm sitting in the parking lot. Brother Kuzel gets out, and he wants to start taking some pictures of the lake and so on. Well, there's this group of people that are standing over here in the parking lot. And as Brother Kuzel always does, he walks over to them. They're a group of guys. Uh, they're, they're young, early 20s. You can tell that they're military. They're just out there having a day on the lake, having a good time and all that kind of stuff. Brother Kuzel goes over to them and he starts talking. I'm sitting in the, in the car still because we've got a schedule. We've got to go. Well, he starts to talk to them, and he continues to talk to them, and he continues to talk to them, and we're waiting, and I'm like, okay, I know what's going to happen here. (laughs) And sure enough, after however many minutes it was, here comes Brother Kuzel with these two guys, one in each arm, coming over to me. So I get out of the car, because I need to meet these guys. And he introduces them, and I introduce myself, and we start to talk and so on. And I'm observing some things about these guys. And they're, they're coming up with the, you know, they, they, have the, they give the impression, you know, that they're real friendly guys. And they are. They're outgoing and so on. They don't have any problems talking and, and this and that. And they're both, you know, they're Christians, and they have this background as being Christians and so on. And, and, and I just start up this conversation with them. And I noticed one of them was a wrestler. He had the cauliflower ears going on. And if you don't know what that is, look it up. Okay? You're welcome. But I said, You're, you wrestled, didn't you? He's like, yeah, how did you know? I'm like, well, I can see it. And that opened up a whole new 
set of conversation with him, and we started making a connection and so on, and he's a Christian, yada, 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 yada. And I said, hey, can I ask you a question? Do you consider yourself to be a good person? And he said, oh, yeah, I consider myself to be a good person. And he talks more about his family and his history and all this kind of stuff. And meanwhile, you know, he's got the alcohol in his hand and his, the words that he's using, far from anything Christian. Like, do you consider yourself to be a good person? He said, yeah, I do. I said, do you mind if I ask you a question or two? You know, you know the Bible, right? He's like, oh, yeah, I know the Bible. You, you know the Ten Commandments, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, I know the Ten Commandments. And what I did was I just started asking him about the good person test. And I said, do, do you think that it's possible for me to prove to you by your own standard that you're not a good person? And it kind of took him aback for a second. And so we started talking. We just went through a couple of different things. And we didn't have a lot of time. But you could tell even before the whole thing was over that his idea of, of goodness was starting to be pulled back and reined in. What we think of ourselves isn't the issue. What we think of ourselves is not the point. We compare ourselves amongst ourselves. We compare ourselves to those out in the world. But the standard is God. And there's no possible way to earn favor with God because of this obstruction that is there called sin. And our very nature keeps us from God. Besides that, God is of pure eyes that he can't even look on sin. That means he can't even look on me or you. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? He can't even look on iniquity. Psalm 5.4 says, Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Jesus says to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm the forerunner. I'm going to remove the obstructions that keep you from God and make ready an eternal home. And friend, in less than 24 hours, Jesus is going to be crucified in less than 24 hours, he is going to shed his sinless blood. He's going to be put, he's going to die on a cross, and then he's going to be put in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he's going to rise from the grave. And what he's going to do is take the very blood that he had shed, and he's going to go to his Father in heaven. He's going to enter into the Holy of Holies in heaven. He's going to put his blood on the mercy seat. And what he's going to do is make record reconciliation with God for you and me. He's going to appease the wrath of God for my sin, the very thing that keeps me from having access to God. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 with me. Hebrews chapter 6. The Bible says here, Hebrews 6 verse 19, Notice this. Which hope we have 
as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Word of God tells us that there is no question as to whom the anchor of the soul is. It is Jesus, and He's gone before us into the Holy of Holies, behind the veil in the temple in heaven with His own blood, and there He makes reconciliation once and for all for the sins of men. Look at Hebrews 9. In verse 12, Hebrews 9, 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And friends, as the first fruit of resurrection, Jesus Christ indeed has gone ahead of us into heaven. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, look at Hebrews 10, in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering, for faithful, He is faithful, that promised. Jesus Christ is the forerunner. I go to prepare a place, to remove the obstructions. We have access with God because of Christ and His blood. Go back to our text in John, and I want you to notice the last part of verse 3, John 14, and notice the next statement that Jesus makes here. Jesus says, i got to get to John, I'm in Luke. Like That's not right. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So Jesus says, if I'm the forerunner, and I've gone ahead, and I've removed the obstructions, and I'm preparing a place for you, if I've done that, I'm going to come again, and I'm going to receive you unto myself. You see the promise that's there? Now notice the words, receive you. Jesus said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. It means, the word means to take unto, and it means to be near. But there's some cultural context going on here that is really helpful for us. When a, when a son wanted to get married, or when a son was betrothed, uh, to, to a woman, and he was going to marry her, he would leave his father's house. And he would leave his father's house and go to his would-be bride's house to talk to her father, and he would negotiate the price that, that needed to be paid uh, in order for them to get married. 
In the same manner, Jesus left his father's home. He came to this world. He paid the price, the ultimate price, his own blood to purchase our redemption. After the purchase price was was figured out, the groom would leave again and he would go back to his father's house. And, And the bride and the groom would be separated from each other for a time. And in that time frame of separation, the groom would be working on a place, preparing a place for him and his bride. And it would be at the father's house. And the father would help. And what they would do is add on to the father's house, preparing a place for the son and his bride. Jesus Christ is separated from us now in heaven with his father. I go to prepare a place for you. He's doing that. And when the time is right, he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And when the when a groom and his father finish preparing or adding on or preparing a place for the, the, the groom and the bride, when it was finished and the time was right, He would go back to his bride's house, to her father, and he would receive her, and the two would come with their wedding party back to the father's house, for his father's house for the wedding. And when the wedding happened, the the groom would take his bride and receive her, and they would go and live together in the place that was prepared. And I'm simply saying this, likewise, Jesus is preparing a place for us right now. And when the time is right, He's going to come and He's going to gather His own and He's going to bring us to the Father's house. And then He says this, that where I am, there ye may be also. What a great statement. And it tells us something and reveals to us something about Jesus Christ. And what is it that it reveals to us? It reveals to us, first of all, that the heart of Jesus Christ is to truly have you and me with Him. What a statement. Oh, come on. Come on, come on, friends. Listen, listen. This is the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of glory. It's Almighty God, and He wants you to be with Him. You know what the Bible says in Psalm 8, 4? What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? We're nothing. We're not worthy. We're, we're wretched, vile creatures that deserve nothing but the judgment of God. And Jesus says that where I am, there ye may be also. His desire is to have you and me with him. Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. It is nothing but kindness and grace. The grace of God that makes a way for you and me to not only have access with the Lord, 
but to be in his presence. You know what Jesus said? Remember what Jesus said to the dying thief on the cross? A thief. A wretched man who is being put to death for his crimes. He said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I think that speaks to the heart of God for undeserving people like you and me. Not only does it tell us that Jesus wants us with him, but Jesus said, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself. It tells us that Jesus is not going to send for us, but he's going to come in person to conduct us to the Father's house. And it tells me how precious we must be to Him for the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of all glory to come Himself and take us by the hand and lead us to the Father's house. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, the Lord himself. Listen, the place that was due for the Son, grace, has made possible for sons. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Amen? Amen. What a gracious, loving, faithful God. The last thing that I want to point out to you this morning is in verses 4 through 6. And that is a plan for the way. So Jesus offers peace for troubled hearts. He tells of a place in the Father's house. He makes a promise to return. And then he says, I've got the plan for the way. In verse 4, whither I go, you know, and the way you know. So in other words, where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now verses 4 and 5 are related to what Peter asked back in, back in chapter 13. Go back to chapter 13 and verse 33. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, skip to verse 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Like, where are you going? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And so when you get over to chapter 14, and we find that Jesus says, 
where I'm going, you know, and the way you know, then Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and so how can we know the way? Well, Jesus gives the answer in verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's going to the Father. And he says, I'm the way for you to get to the Father. He says, here's how. I am the way. Jesus doesn't point the way in the distance. Jesus doesn't send a pin on the GPS on your phone to map it out and give directions and tell you to turn right here. No, Jesus says, I'm the way, and I'm going to take you to him. He says, follow me, and I'll lead you to him. Now, I want to break these statements down just briefly this morning as we bring this message to a close. Jesus makes three statements. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. These are all, no man comes to the Father but by me. He says, I am the way. And friend, without Christ, men are lost in this world. Without Christ, men are wanderers in a world of sin. Romans 3.12 tells us that all men are gone out of the way. The word means to deviate. They're off course. They're deviated from the path. They can't find it. And friend, Jesus Christ is not merely a guide who came to show men the path that they should walk. He himself is the way to the Father. And when Jesus uses the phrase, I am the way, he is again claiming the name of Jehovah God for himself. He is God in human flesh. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the way, the truth, the life. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be God. And his life proved it. Because no one else did the miracles that he did. No one else lived the sinless life that he did. Nobody else died like he did as our substitute. Nobody else rose from the grave by their own power. Jesus doesn't say, I am a way to God. He says, I am the way to God, the only way. And Acts 4 and verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. The only way that you'll ever have access to God, the only way you'll ever see heaven is through the way, Jesus Christ. He says, I'm the truth. Without Christ, men are under the power of the devil, the father of lies. Christ is not merely a teacher who came to reveal men to men a doctrine regarding God. No, he himself is the very truth of God. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I'm truth itself. He said, I am the life. Without Christ, men are dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus Christ is not merely a physician who came to invigorate the old nature, to refine it or to repair its defects. No, he said, I am life and I came to give life. And I have come that men might have life and they might have it more abundantly. It's not a repairing of who you are. It's not a refining of the old way of life. No, he came to give you a brand new life. You know what you need to do, friend? You understand that this, who I am, what I am, is rotten. 
It doesn't deserve love from God. It doesn't deserve anything from God. I can't have access to God. There's no way that I can possibly earn favor with God simply because of who I am. My sin nature separates me from God. And Jesus said, I came to give you new life. What you need to do is repent of just you. Of just you. And lay it down. Say, God, I'm sick of me. I'm sick of being me. And me is an offense to you because all I do is break your law. Lord, I need you to make me new. Give me brand new life. And crucify this old flesh. Crucify me. That's what you need to do. Without Christ, men are dead in trespasses and sins. And he says, I came that men might have life. And by believing, you might have life through his name. 1 John 5, 12 says, He that hath the Son of hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. So here it is. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. His last statement is, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And friend, it is utterly impossible to win the favor of God by any effort of your own. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, you need to be saved today. You need to yield your will to the Lord. Friend, you need to stop trusting in some religion. You need to stop trusting in some profession that you made when you were little. If you're not saved and the Spirit of God is bringing conviction to your heart, stop holding on to something that will never give you access to God. Yield your will. Admit your Admit what you are. Confess your pride. Listen, a profession when you were little, a profession when, when you were 12, a profession when you were 14, a profession when you were 29 or 58, a profession will never get you to heaven. Is the Spirit of God living inside of you? Do you know, do you know that you're saved? Or is there plaguing doubts? You know, your life will show it too. Just recently I was thinking about dealing with a situation and it seemed like this individual had this pattern in their life. A pattern of always the wrong attitude. A pattern of always it's somebody else's fault. A pattern of never really being able to fully yield and surrender to God, saying the right words. But it seemed like the course of life and the pattern of life just didn't seem like there was power there to do it. 
I thought to myself, you know what, I wonder, and only the Lord knows, but I wonder if this person's not really even saved. Why? Because when the Spirit of God comes in and there's true salvation, He makes you a brand new creature. And there's spiritual life that is there. And there's power, power that you've never had before. And if you're constantly trying and trying and trying to say the right things and do the right things, but there's never power to have the right attitude about things, I wonder if there's, there needs to be brand new life put in you. That part wasn't in the notes. Yield your will to God. Repent of just being you. And come to Christ. Amen? If you're here today and you're saved, but you got a troubled heart, let not your heart be troubled. Thank the Lord for His unspeakable gift. Amen? Jesus gave some good assurances to His disciples here. And then let the promise of God be the anchor of your soul. He's a good God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, use it however you would see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.